This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. This is the Hack Podcast. Less than 3% of early childhood workers in Australia are men. Why is that? Because there are a few reasons that people put forward. Maybe it's stigma, pay... What's the answer, though, when we need more childcare workers than ever before? Later, we're heading back to daycare to hear from some men who are in this job about the barriers that they've faced, also the reasons why they love this work. Also, what is with this obsession with run clubs? We're going to find out why group running is so popular right across the country at the moment. First, though. Hack. This is not just killing our best people. This is also a destroying of the world. On Triple J. Yeah, just a few days ago, Alexei Navalny, Russia's jailed opposition leader, was cracking jokes while he was appearing in court via video link. Everything seemed pretty normal. Hours later, he was dead. Now, this wasn't just any person in Russia. This was President Vladimir Putin's biggest rival. And world leaders from the US president down are pointing the finger at the Russian president, saying he's behind this. So what do we know? And what does Alexei Navalny's death mean for the future of Russia? In a bit, we're going to unpack some of this with an expert. But first, here's April McLennan with an update. The simple act of laying flowers can be risky business in Russia. That is, if you're laying them in tribute to the biggest opponent of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Alexei Navalny died at a notorious penal colony in the Arctic Circle on Friday. Russian authorities claim he was out for a walk, felt unwell, collapsed and never regained consciousness. His allies in Russia say he was murdered. And now more than 100 people have been detained in cities across Russia after trying to lay floral tributes for him. We are here to honour the memory of a hero. Yes, we consider him a hero because he fought for freedom. Because we believe it is important in the 21st century to live in a democratic country and not in a dictatorship. So, who was Alexei Navalny? He will probably be remembered as the best president of Russia that Russia will never have. Navalny became famous after exposing electoral fraud and government corruption during 2011 parliamentary elections in Russia. He built a huge following on social media in the years after, especially on YouTube. And in 2017, Navalny announced he was running for president against Putin, but his candidacy was blocked. Then about three years ago, he was poisoned by a nerve agent and flown unconscious to Germany for treatment. Later, when he returned to Russia, he was immediately locked up and he's been in prison ever since, where he's serving a long sentence for charges of extremism and fraud, which he and his supporters say were politically motivated. So did Navalny die of natural causes, perhaps succumb to the harsh conditions of a Russian prison in winter, or was he murdered? Navalny didn't die, Putin killed him. He put him in that prison on trumped up charges after trying to poison him. Putin killed Navalny, and it's just the latest of a, of a series of opponents of Putin who have met the same fate. Brian Whitmore from the Atlantic Council reckons it's pretty obvious what happened. Well, the day before, he was seen on a video in a court appearance and he looked healthy and jovial, so I think it's kind of odd that a, that a man in his late 40s would just suddenly die when he appeared healthy the day before. Despite the claims that he was murdered, the Kremlin denies this, and doctors are yet to reveal his cause of death. 
Although even Prime Minister Anthony Albanese thinks Putin's responsible. This is a brave man who stood up for democratic values and human rights in Russia, in his country. And his treatment is just uh, beyond the pale and we hold Vladimir Putin responsible for that. As does US President Joe Biden. Make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. Navalny's death has come just a month before an election in Russia. And if Putin wins, he'll be in power for another six years. Meanwhile, Russia's had a win in its invasion of Ukraine. Ukrainian troops have withdrawn from the eastern town of Avdivka. It's the biggest advance for Russia in many months. Despite this, the Ukrainian army is still calling their efforts a win. They say Russia suffered some pretty significant losses in the fight. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that story. I want to find out a bit more about what exactly is happening in Russia right now. And there's one person we always go to, Dr Matthew Sussex from ANU's Strategic and Defence Studies Centre. He's with us now. G'day, Matt. Thank you very much for coming on Hack. G'day, Dave. Thanks for having me. Alexei Navalny's death, I mean, it's obviously really tragic, but was this always going to happen? Is this unexpected? Oh, look, it's not unexpected at all, I'm afraid. Uh, I mean, this is the guy, this is a guy that the Kremlin and the security services have tried to bump off a number of times. And in 2017, he lost most of the sight in, in one eye after being uh, having a chemical thrown at him. A few years after that, he was poisoned with a, a military-grade chemical weapon. And then, of course, after he recovered, he made this very brave, but some would say perhaps a bit foolish, decision to return home. So I, I think even his most ardent supporters would have thought that he probably wasn't going to see freedom. Uh, and it's something that, that even he hinted at as well. And already, as we've heard, people have been arrested, jailed even for going to pay their respects, uh, honouring Alexei Navalny. He has become this martyr figure. I'm wondering if you think, Matt, this could turn out to be a problem for Vladimir Putin in the lead-up to election, that we could see more protests, unrest in Russia. Yeah, look, Vladimir Putin certainly wants everybody to believe that this is him exercising strength, getting rid of his, his last remaining charismatic critic. But I think it you know, might, in fact, rebound on him to some extent. Um, not so much in terms of the elections. He was always going to win those anyway. There's no real place for, for someone in jail who's not even on the ballot. You know, democracy's pretty phony anyway in Russia. But we tend to, as outsiders, I think, we tend to look at, at autocrats, you know, and the things that they do and the outrages that they visit on people that are uh, around them, their neighbours. But it's often the, the crimes they commit against their own countries and their own people that are the ones that come back to bite them. And ultimately, look, if this is Navalny's legacy, sad though it is, then probably he would have done Russia a bit of a, a bit of a service and the world too. You think for Vladimir Putin, this ambiguity about the death, you know, all of the conversations around it internationally within Russia as well, plays into his hand of power that he wants people to think that he did this? Oh, absolutely. He does. You know, um, it's, it's one of his standard MOs, like with, you know, questions about whether he meddled in, in American elections and and European elections, basically, it's speaking power to truth. What he's saying is very simple. It's, you know, uh, I'll deny it, but you all know that I was behind it. Unfortunately for you, you're going to do nothing because you're weak and I'm strong. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Dr Matthew Sussex, expert in international security, about the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny and the war in Ukraine. 
Matt, to the war now, and as we've just heard, Russia's had some wins recently. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky is sounding a bit anxious about the situation and Ukraine not getting enough support from the world. How bad is the situation for Ukraine at the moment? Well, it's bad at the moment, Dave, and uh, and it's going to get a hell of a lot worse if uh, the US doesn't pass the military aid uh, bill for um, for Ukraine. Effectively, Ukraine relies on the United States primarily, but also Europe for ammunition um, and uh, basically to, to be able to keep in the fight. So already the Russians have made some territorial gains because the Ukrainians are just simply running out of ammo. And the, the concern in Kiev is that, well, effectively, while everybody in the West sits on their hands, the Russians are busy erasing all the gains that the Ukrainians made that cost many thousands of lives in their in their counteroffensive last year, which, you know, means that 2024 looks to be a pretty grim year to Ukraine if the House of Representatives in the US doesn't get its finger out. Because this is a lot of money. This is, I think, an equivalent of more than 90 billion Australian dollars for Ukraine. Um, and it is facing a bit of opposition in the US, this package that the President Joe Biden has promised. You're saying that Ukraine is, it needs that to really be able to continue on. Absolutely, yeah. Without it, it will just not have enough ability to stay in the fight. This is the sad reality where you have rogue members of, of one of America's political party basically you know, playing politics with people's lives uh, in saying, well, you know, we won't agree to funding unless Biden agrees to fund the border wall um, and, uh, you know, to, to stop the influx of, of illegal immigrants something of course that you can do but you know it's something that ultimately rebounds on on the lives of people who are you know just fighting for for their country and their freedom in the past we've seen morale issues on the russia side and concern that soldiers for russia were not invested in this war what is happening on the russian side well if you're a mobilized soldier uh, morale is still terrible it's estimated that in uh, recapturing one small town just recently, uh, over a period of months, the Russians have lost 47,000 mobilised people, but also regular forces dead, um, and a hell of a lot of of, of trucks and tanks and so forth. The term meat grinder is used uh, a lot. I think, unfortunately, in this case, it's true. But, you know, um, there are 470,000 estimated Russian troops in Ukraine right now, and and that's a lot to uh, to fight against. Mind you, they've lost about three hundred and fifteen thousand, which is is fully ninety percent of what they started the war with. Wow, that's staggering. That number. Is there any sign in any world that Russia would give up on this, Matt? Uh, I don't think only think that Russia gives up if it's put in a position where um, it is impossible to make you know any more territorial gains or it suffers a really rapid reversal. And I don't think that's going to happen this year. Putin is betting that the West will lose interest, that it will leave the Ukrainians in the lurch. And not only will that you know give it the ability to negotiate a, a very favorable peace settlement, which you know turns Ukraine basically into a into a rump state, but it also allows it to say to the world, well, you know, the West doesn't doesn't support its friends. It it throws them it throws them under the bus, um, and uh, you know Russia is resurgent. But that said, you know, if the weapons continue to flow to the Ukrainians, they will be able to hold the Russians out. I think, uh, and potentially be able to turn it around you know, towards the end of the year, maybe next year. 
Uh, and if they do that, then Putin will be put in a pretty awkward situation, I think. It'll be you know, back to advantage Ukraine. Well, as you say, another big year ahead. Certainly, there's going to be a lot happening. Thank you very much, as always, for coming on and breaking it down. Matt Sussex from ANU Strategic and Defence Studies Centre. Appreciate, appreciate you coming on Hack. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Dave. Thanks for having me. Hack. There is a kind of perception that childcare isn't for men. On Triple J. We need more people in caring industries than ever before, whether it's aged care, nursing, especially childcare. And all those career paths are really female-dominated and rates of men haven't really budged in the last few years. Men only make up about 3% of the early childhood workforce. If you're a guy who's in childcare, I'd love to hear from you. What kind of reaction did you get from your friends and family when you told them you wanted to do this? How do you find the work? You can message in 0439757555. We've already got some messages coming through. Someone says, I'm a male childcare worker in the disability sector and I love my job. There are many pros and cons with being a male in this industry, industry like any job. That's someone's thoughts there. I am keen to hear experiences, but first, here's Shalila Madora taking us inside a childcare centre that actually has a 50-50 ratio. Dylan, can you say Hello. Hello. Come on, let's go. Nap time's just finished at Galileo Early Learning in Canberra's inner south. The small childcare centre caters to up to 39 children every day. Some of the little ones are playing at a pretend kitchen. We're making some cookies and biscuits for dinner. Cookies and biscuits for dinner? Is that one cookie for me? No. Director and owner Sarah McCulloch is showing me around. We're in the kitchen now. Oh, is that? Blue tongue. It's a blue tongue lizard. So actually in the kitchen at the minute, in the vicinity, we've got four males. Yeah. All, all in the vicinity. So you yeah. see, um, it's a strong value of mine is to have men in early childhood. Sarah's really passionate about this. So much so that her centre has a 50-50 ratio of male and female educators. Having both in a centre brings beautiful balance. Sarah's 23-year-old son, Aaron, has followed in her footsteps. My mum opened up a centre and she's always said that I've got her caring nature and all this kind of stuff, so she asked me to come volunteer for a little bit, which I did, and then just fell into the role and been working in it since. But it's not always easy having men in this traditionally female-dominated industry. The stigma's still there with, with some parents. I've had parents come to different centres I've worked at and also here who said, um, I don't want my child's nappy to cha be changed by a, by a male educator. I think it's also because this is seen as a more feminine job. It's our men are tradies and sports and all this kind of stuff, so seeing a man in a nurturing, caring, more feminine setting is looked down upon. Men make up less than 3% of Australia's early childhood workforce. That's pretty similar to other rich countries in the OECD, which average about 4%. That's despite all the research showing that kids benefit from having male and female educators. So why are so few young men choosing early childhood as a career path? Growing up, I had a lot of younger cousins. Uh, I had a lot of experience looking after them when my family went off to dinner and stuff like that. So that sort of got me thinking about um, studying 
a Bachelor of Early Childhood or getting into teaching. Max Drogamuller is 24 and studying part-time for his Bachelor of Early Childhood at the Uni of South Australia. He says the first couple of years of studying were really tough. I didn't really enjoy it going in, to be honest, because there was not really many males in my classes and it was really daunting just going into a female setting. Um, in uni and just not knowing anyone, not being able to talk to anyone. Connecting with other male educators and uni lecturers in this space has been a game changer for Max. I think we need to get uh, more males in that, that industry, so it makes it easier for us to get through uni. Max's family are really supportive of his career choice. A few of them are teachers right now and they thought it, really, it would be a really good career path for, for me to go to. And largely, so are his friends, but there's always the odd outlier. Some friends of friends come up to me and say, questioning why I'm doing that. Um, they've understood after I speak to them about like why I chose this and I think they understand it's probably better for the society to have men in, the, in a childcare industry. I think we lack in that aspect. Back at Galileo's, Aaron McCulloch says he went through something really similar. Uh, yeah, I've had some people that have gone, really, you in childcare, and I've laughed it off. That doubt from others never once made Aaron question himself. The path I'm on, I'm enjoying, so does it really matter in the end? This is Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that story. We're getting some messages through people who are childcare workers and have experience with, you know, men getting into this industry. Someone says, my mum works in childcare and she's always said that male childcare workers are fantastic because they have so much fun with the children and the children love them. But she's also told me that they still get paid more than their female childcare workers. We need to fix that pay gap too. Another person says, I recruit for childcare centres and hiring male staff is a huge for us, amazing role models. Let's get into this a bit more, especially the gaps in childcare, what we need to do to overcome those, why more men aren't taking up these roles. Dr. Marty Millsbane is a senior lecturer in early childhood education at the Uni of SA. He also mentored Max, who you just heard from, and he's with us now. G'day, Marty. Thank you very much for coming on Hack. G'day, Dave. How are you going? Yeah, I'm well, thank you. I'm interested in this story and, like, you know about this industry, why we aren't seeing a lot of men going into early education jobs. What is behind this, in your opinion? Yeah, it's been a, a problem for a long time and it's really hard to kind of shift it, to be honest. But um, I think, you know, in your story, you kind of hit on some of the key points that um, working with young children is seen as, you know, not a space for men. Um, there's not much incentive for men to come into that space and we don't see many men. So um, young boys coming up don't get to see that great male educator like Max, I might say, and like Aaron, who's out there doing a great job. We've got some messages coming through in terms of stigma and like Anthony from Melbourne says, I've been an early childhood educator for years and I know many other men in early childhood who've been treated as suspicious until proven otherwise. This is a huge barrier to men wanting to get into the sector. Another person says, yeah, it might have something to do with a broadly held perception that men who work with young children are creepy. This does seem to be a big issue as well, Marty. How do you overcome that sort of stuff? Yeah, no, you're right, Dave. And, and certainly there is that perception about men working with young children that, you know, sometimes they're there for the wrong reasons. But the great men who are out there are certainly they're doing an amazing job. Um, but they are they are surveilled in a way that their, their female colleagues aren't. And that's something that a lot of young guys coming into that field feel and it often ends with them leaving um, that career. But the more men who are there for, you know, 
passionate quality um, care and education, the more men we have in those spaces, the more we see those great male role models, the more we see men in education and care roles um, from an early age. We've got more messages coming through. Obviously, not just childcare issue across many different sectors. Someone says, I'm a high school maths teacher and I'm the first male teacher many of my year seven students have ever had. Marty, do you see a bit of change happening at the moment? Obviously, you've been involved in mentoring uh, some younger guys who are getting into the sector. Is there a bit of a shift that you can that you can perceive? Yeah, I'm feeling a real shift at the moment, Dave. I can tell you there's certainly a focus on workforce. We have huge workforce shortages in all areas of teaching, but particularly in the early years where we see lots of people leave um, that sector. Um, the, there is a national push for early childhood workforce strategy. There is a state push in lots of states. And myself, I'm part of the Thrive by Five Dads Action Plan that is pushing for more male involvement in fatherhood, but also in those early years of education. We've got people like the Wiggles on board. We've got um, the Australian local hero, Amar Singh, uh, with the, uh, you know great people kind of talking up the role of not just fathers but men in young children's lives so there is a shift I can feel it It'll, it'll be interesting to see how it changes over the next few years because obviously everyone notices in terms of whether it's paid parental leave more men taking on those responsibilities caring for their own kids and whether that filters through to uh, careers like childcare, um, like any of these caring roles what about incentives that's something that some people have put forward maybe we need to incentivize men to get into these industries i imagine there's probably pros and cons of this what's your take on it. Yeah, I think that's something that might be needed. Certainly the first step is increased awareness that there is a problem. We all know that. Um, but a lot of the, the state and federal kind of pushes, I think there needs to be some kind of incentive or scholarship that, that kind of puts that bit of a carrot there for not just more men, but more diversity across the board in the early years. Um, but certainly thinking about how we can get more men in their scholarships is one way to go about it. We need increased paying conditions across the sector for men and women working in early childhood. This area needs to be seen as a priority absolutely for young children and families that are, that are um, using childcare and, and early learning centres. We definitely appreciate your take on all of this. Dr Marty Millsbane from the University of SA, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Dave. Good to talk to you, Matt. And we've got some more messages coming through. Someone says, I'm an early childhood teacher. I'm a woman and I'm very passionate about the gender pay gap. However, the first and greatest mentor I had was a man. He was a fantastic early childhood teacher and director. Another person says, I've been working in childcare for almost a year now and there are only two of us men and someone else. I've worked in early childhood education for years. I see time and time again that men are being pushed out of working in this industry. I see parents treating men differently, even management as well. So much comment on this one. Obviously something a lot of you want to talk about. Time to move on though. Hack. Love the community that we're building with this group. On Triple J. Have you ever thought about joining a run club? Maybe you're already sold. You've been doing it for a while. You wouldn't dream of starting your day any other way. You would have seen a lot of this stuff maybe on TikTok, on Instagram. Oh, it's happy vibes, isn't it? It really does seem like community-led run clubs are having their moment right now. Wherever it is in Australia, in the big cities, but also in regional areas, from central Queensland to Brisbane to Sydney, a whole lot of people are gathering to jog with their friends or strangers, strangers once a week. 
and experts are saying it's doing a whole lot of good for our bodies and our minds. Rockhampton reporter Scout Wallen went along to find out a bit more. Here in what's known as the beef capital of Queensland, runners are meeting for a five-kilometre run followed by a steak. Run and Rump is a social run club that we do 30 minutes of running or walking and then have dinner afterwards. That's Lucy Blair. She and her friend Sam Plath organised the Run and Rump Run Club in Rockhampton, central Queensland. Last year we started with a group of probably approximately 10 to 15 of us. Um, our first run back this year we had 26. Last week we had 60 and I haven't counted the numbers this week but I think it's probably up again. And it's really helped people new to Rocky find their feet. I moved from Brisbane about a year ago but Run Club is definitely a great way to sort of be social. This is my first time and I feel like already found some people to run with who are at a similar pace and were really easy to chat to so it was really exciting and I'll definitely be back. I only moved back to Rocky a month ago and Run and Rump has really helped me find new people and make friends since moving regionally. Across Australia, Run Club participation has grown astronomically. I think everybody's looking for an excuse to be healthy and get fit and have fun and hang out with their friends all at the same time, so what better? I love that you get to run with your friends. It's really encouraging and just super fun. With the group, I am like, so I've found a new love for it now and it's like great fun. I think that it's social media. Like, I think that the reason why running and run clubs are having their moment in the spotlight. I think that if people weren't posting about it on TikTok and Instagram, I don't think that it would be how it is. Like, I honestly think that it looks like something fun. And I think once you go once, like, you keep going because you leave Run Club with the biggest smile on your face and you've got the runners high. That's Sophie Svelter. She and her housemate, Sophie Reinflesch, are the founders of So So Run Club down in Brisbane. What started as a handful of friends going for a jog every Saturday morning has amassed to nearly 500 runners each week. Like when you're running with other people who can like encourage you or even just like everyone kind of runs at like a slow enough pace where you can chat to someone. You're running and chatting with someone the whole way and you don't even realise that you've like run 5k. So with run clubs springing up all over the place, what's going on here? Dr Michael Notel, who's a psychology professor at the University of Queensland, has been thinking about this a lot. I think the two things that are amazing about run clubs is that they provide support so that when you're struggling at the end of the run or struggling for motivation, that people are, are there to help you. And the accountability, meaning that if you don't turn up or you don't do it on a certain week, someone in the world is going to notice. And that makes a huge difference for keeping us going when something's hard to begin. And he's also been researching the effectiveness of exercise when it comes to treating depression and anxiety. So for lots of people, it's hard to see a doctor or a psychologist. It's either expensive, it's a long way away, there's long wait lists. Lots of people find that seeing, doing some exercise is so much lower barriers, right? You can go for a run or a walk without getting any prescription, without seeing anybody. And doing that in a group setting where you have some support or accountability, either from like a run club or a gym, just something where you have other humans helping you on what is a hard journey will make a huge difference in terms of reducing your depression symptoms. The two Sophies reckon there might be some other possible benefits too. Seeing people who couldn't run like more than a few hundred metres now being able to finish a five and a 10K or stuff like that is like, it's so nice to see. I think like how we find it so rewarding is seeing the incredible like friendships and relationships. Like there are people who've met their like partner at Run Club. Like that to us is like so special. Do you think you're gonna find love at this Run Club? Oh, maybe, maybe. Oh, can't comment, I'm engaged. 
I think you can find love in friendships. I'm not sure there's love in Rockhampton here, but... I'm always hoping to find love in life. <laughs> um, if it happens at Run and Rump, then great, but if otherwise I just make amazing friends, then I'm happy with that too. But at the end of the day, the most important question I put to the Run and Rump runners in Rocky is how do you take your steak? Uh, I like my steak medium with a salad on the side. <laughs> Rare, double gravy, chips, salad's kidding itself. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Scout Wallen with that story from Rockhampton. A lot of messages coming through on this one. Someone says, runner sales and running in general spikes during economic crises. It's a cheap and accessible stress reliever. Another person says, I joined a running club as a non-runner. We start and finish at a different pub each week, (laughs) which is great. Sounds like a very fun time. And Sammy says... I started running with my friends at all different places for park run last year. I've always hated running and I kind of still do hate running, but love the experience of going to all these different places and spending some quality time with my friends. Also, some messages on the male educator's story. Someone says, since having a child of my own, I could consider transitioning to childcare once I'm too old to be on the tools. And someone else, I'm the only male staff member at my primary school. I don't feel like I belong. I often think about quitting. There's been big reaction to that story. It's something that we'll keep following. Talk about, uh, you know, the shortages in caring industries across the board and some of the barriers that people are facing. But that is all we've got time for for this Hack podcast. I'll catch you next time. 